Welcome to the Redemption Tempe podcast, where we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. My name is Greg Lindsay. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm joined by Josh Butler, another one of our pastors. And we're going to continue today on week five of our Exile Sermon Series. Josh, what's going on? Hey, man? good to be here. Greg, looking forward to it. Yes. Yeah. I'm also excited to say that we've got a couple of guests on our show today, uh, Jamin Gogan and Kyle Strobel. Jamin is a pastor at Mission... Oh, yeah. No, bring it on, Josh. That's good. Yeah. You guys have a welcoming committee. Uh, Jamin is a pastor at Mission Hills Church in San Marcos, San Marcos, California, and Kyle is a professor at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. And together, Jamin and Kyle have written a number of books, including The Way of the Dragon, The Way of the Lamb, Searching for Jesus's Path of Power in a Church that Has Abandoned It, uh, Beloved Dust, Drawing Close to God by Discovering the Truth About Yourself and Others. So guys, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks so much for having us. It's good to be here. Good to be with you guys. Yes. Yes. We're glad to have you on. So to frame our conversation today, I wanted to give a little bit of context. So as I mentioned, we're in week five of our Exile series. We're reading through the book of Daniel. And specifically in this podcast, we've been looking at how in each chapter of Daniel, we see a pretty clear cultural idol and are also presented with a gospel truth that replaces that idol. So this week we're in Daniel 5, looking at the cultural idol of hedonism with the gospel truth that God replaces it uh, with true joy. So Josh, uh, before we jump in, can you give us some quick spark notes on Daniel 5 to catch us all up to speed? Definitely. So Daniel 5 this week, just to recap, uh, Belshazzar, king of Babylon, he's throwing a huge rager party, kind of gathers all the kings and leaders and nobles in the area, and and, um, man, is even desecrating the things of God. Uh, using them for his own pleasure. Uh, but then God shows up and is like, hey, the party's over, right? And that night the king dies and another empire takes over from them. Uh, and it's not just that night, like this is symbolic uh, or a, a, a signpost of a bigger reality that Babylon has been living for kind of the pursuit of pleasure, amassing wealth and whatever else they could accumulate, uh, even harming others, destroying others to live for kind of their own good and their own pleasure. And I think we see in our culture today, too, that many are living for pleasure, you know, and and pleasure is a good thing. It's given by God. uh, But there is this way in which it can become an idol, can almost become ultimate, uh, the the pursuit of just our own uh, pleasure, our own enjoyment and all can actually lead us to live lives that ultimately are unjust and come under the, the judgment of God. And so, Today, for this week, uh, you know, and in this conversation, we want to try and go, what are, for Jamin and Kyle, you know, what are some ways that we as a culture, that you see us in unhealthy ways pursuing uh, pleasure in ways that are unhealthy and can lead to destruction? Um, and rather than just kind of going, hey, pleasure is bad, uh, we want to explore, you know, what are, how does the gospel call us to a deeper joy, a truer joy? And I'm really glad we've got you guys on because I've really loved your work in a lot of areas. Um, most recently in your book, The Way of the Dragon, The Way of the Lamb, uh, that you co-wrote together looking at power. And and we see that a lot in, in, in this passage and in Babylon, kind of the pursuit of power for the goal of pleasure, um, as well as maybe some other goals. And in your guys' most recent book, you traveled around the country. You interviewed uh, some strong heroes of the faith, people like J.I. Packer, Eugene Peterson, John Perkins, Dallas Willard. Uh, but I am curious, not only in this book, but in, in some of your other work, like Beloved Dust, where you guys really tap into um, a deeper life that God offers in union with him. And so maybe just to kickstart the conversation, I'd be curious for you guys, how do you see uh, maybe starting with the problem, how do you see the pursuit of pleasure showing up in unhealthy ways in our culture? And where do you think that's coming from? 
Well, let me jump in and then I'll hand it over to Jamin. But, you know, in many ways, you have the general pursuit in, in culture, although I'm actually a little more interested in trying to think about in the church, how do we kind of get this wrong? I mean, it's 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 reasonable that the world would get this wrong, <laughs> quite honestly. The, the problem I think we have is that we have a starting point of pleasure. And often what we learn, and there's all sorts of reasons we can talk about of why we learn this, particularly as young Christians, but we come to think that, that God ultimately is a kind of power out there who ultimately wants what I want and who will ultimately give it to me in the ways I want it. And so one of, you know, one of Jesus's um, sayings comes to mind here, and I, I think it's one of the sayings that we don't take seriously enough quite often, which is that if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose it for my sake, you'll find it. And this parallels, you know, some of Jamin and I's work on power, you know, the, the notion that um, his power is found in weakness. You know, there's two, with both these two passages, we can make the same mistake. On the one hand, we can hear Jesus is saying, look, you just got to lose your lives. That isn't what he said. The goal is to find your life, but he's giving you an unusual path to find it. Similarly, with power found in his found in our weakness, the goal is power, but he's giving us again a very unusual path by which to discover it. Unfortunately, usually as young Christians, we come to kind of believe very deeply that actually it's in the fulfillment of desire that these things are advancing. We often learn that through certain kinds of worshiping techniques. We often learn it through just, I mean, very kind of um, genuine kind of moments of profundity in reading scripture. And we come to think this is what the Christian life will look like. It will be this increasing moment where I will have deeper and deeper pleasure, deeper, and deeper excitement, deeper and deeper joy on my own terms. And God is here to kind of give me that. And I think what God tends to do with us is he tends to lead us to recognize, as he did with his disciples, I am leading you to a greater joy. And to use the language of the tradition, your your desires need converting. Uh, it, it's not merely that your desires um, are fulfilled in a different way, but actually we're going to convert your desires entirely. And yes, I am leading you to something greater, but it's not what you expect and it's probably not what you want right now. And so there's this unusual kind of journey that the Lord leads us into. And it is a journey of losing our lives for the sake of finding it in him. And so as Christians, I think we have to reconsider then, how am I, how am I discerning what I think of as, let's say, a good church service, a good book, a good quote-unquote experience? Um, how am I longing for my pleasures? Yes, we don't want to kind of just demonize pleasure, but we also need to th reconsider pleasure in light of the kind of shape of Christ's life and what he has called us to. Mm. Yeah, I think maybe to to wed on to what Kyle just shared, I think that, that kind of anchoring point of um, what does it mean to to receive Christ's invitation to find life in him. And as he says, life abundant is kind of what surfaces for me. We talk about the pursuit of pleasure. And I think one of the things I think perhaps we see going on in the culture that, that has been a bit imbibed in the life of the church itself as well is this, this kind of notion that the goal of life is self-actualization and that that will get us to kind of flourishing and 
Um, and I think that self-actualization probably has two parts to it. One is maybe a, kind of an actualizing of capacities or abilities or competencies, right? Kind of becoming our, our fullest expression of all that we could be in terms of uh, our competencies. Um, but I think on the other side, there's, 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 there's another component to self-actualization that is grounded in our desires, right? That, that the, kind of the flourishing life is a life where our, our, our desires are kind of fulfilled and met. And um, often the kind of the vision of the good life is, man, if, if I can get to a point where both my gifts and capacities or competencies are kind of operating at their highest level and I'm, I'm achieving and on the other side, if I can get to a point where my desires are being met and what I long for is being fulfilled, then, then I will have kind of arrived, right? Of course, Christ invites us into something quite different, that uh, the flourishing self is actually not the self fully actualized, so to speak, but the flourishing self is the abiding self. Right? It's uh, the person who is uh, grounded in utter dependence upon Christ. And, and this is where I think some of the statements of Jesus himself are, are words we often hold on to as having vitality and beauty when we first hear them. But perhaps as we hold them a bit longer in our own hearts, the tension we notice is we don't often really believe what he's saying, right? that that this, this way of life that includes a death to self and a a living now to the glory of God in and through Christ Jesus, a life that's marked by self-sacrifice and service and giving and generosity and uh, relinquishing of certain uh, longings and pleasures and desires for a greater good that now is found in Christ, that this actually, this way of life is, is a life abundant, that this leads to flourishing, right? And Jesus uh, presents much of what I think shows up, for example, in the book of Proverbs is, uh, a wholly different way of understanding the path of fulfillment and life and flourishing, right? This kind of tension between what often Proverbs develops between the way of folly and the way of wisdom, right? And Proverbs presents these two ways kind of through the voice of a woman, right? Lady folly and lady wisdom. And one calls and beckons for kind of the immediate gratification of the self and meeting desires right away and having power and strength and significance and um, privilege and money and resource. And, and, and yet it warns that this ultimately is the way that leads to death, right? This ultimately is a way that leads to actual scarcity of life. And on the other hand, we have the way of true wisdom where there's, there's a, there's a, an invitation into something much richer and deeper, but often on the surface, it doesn't appear to be, um, the life of flourishing and abundance we would expect. And I think to Kyle's point, oftentimes uh, this notion of uh, the flourishing self as a self fully actualized where my desires and all my gifts and competencies are kind of ratcheted up and met and achieved. We often kind of bring this into the life of the church and we often actually lay at the doorstep of the church, similar expectations um, for worship or for preaching or for God himself, right? That, we kind of are on a quest to get somewhere. And, and if God wants to be a resource to kind of get us there, then great. Um, but the invitation of the gospel, of course, is to lay aside our own kind of narrative of what human flourishing looks like, our own kind of quest for uh, 
flourishing and fulfillment and to receive this new invitation from Christ Jesus himself into the abundant life. I love that contrast between the abiding life uh, versus self-actualization, sort of an ultimate goal. I was uh, reading this morning um, some research on, you know, kind of declining uh, marriage rates, the declining of marriage in our culture. And and one person who was kind of arguing for, like, it should be this way and arguing why. And and it was really, uh, the argument was uh, essentially like, we need greater autonomy and personal freedom to just sort of do what we want to do and be who we want to be. And uh, committed relationships like that can become constraining or binding, you know? And so there's kind of this, this goal of, uh, I, I want self-actualization. Mm. We should want self-actualization. And because of that, uh, this is just one avenue in which you see like a, a, a letting go of stronger committed bonds of relationship, you know? And, and it made me think of how sometimes like the, mm. the goal of self-actualization uh, can seem so appealing because it's centered around me as a person. Uh, but in the end run, like, dude, if you wind up uh, cutting yourself off from relationship, I'm not saying marriage is the only way to have deep relationships, but if your pursuit of self-actualization, you know, can can actually leave you really lonely. <laughs> a lot of if you burn all your bridges because you're just, you know, striving for your own mm. life. And that maybe seems like one area in which mm. the gospel invites into a deeper joy. In the long run, I wonder if there's this deeper joy found mm. in communion with God and others that the pursuit of self-actualization as an end goal ultimately kind of strips us away from and severs us from. Well, two things you guys said that I, I thought were really interesting. One was like the shape of Christ's life. And I've heard someone talk about this as like a J curve, right? Like the, the sense of like, uh, you go down to go up kind of like a, the letter J, you know, it kind of goes down and it comes uh, and then it goes up. And we see this in Christ's life. He goes down into the grave, crucifixion and, and death, uh, in order to be ascended and raised and resurrected, exalted. And there is the reality, like the end game is going up. Like you said, Kyle, like the end game is actually pleasure. The end game is actually power. It's a deeper joy um, that's set before us. I think where in Hebrews talks about Jesus, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, scorning and suffering and shame, that actually he was motivated by joy, mm-hmm. but that end game led him to be tortured, humiliated, shamed, bear the weight of the world and and be crucified to get there, you know? And, and so I, I'm curious if you could maybe talk a little more about um, that, how the shape of Christ's life leads to a conversion of desire. Like you mentioned that phrase, conversion of desire, which I, I think is compelling because it, it means that when, you, when you're, you're motivated, like you're attracted by beauty ultimately, right? Like you're driven by the goodness of God, a vision for something that's ultimately better than what you currently have before you. And so it seems like often the gospel is, is setting this good before you, this pleasure, this joy, this, this ultimate good. And yet to attain it, the calling is actually a dying and letting go in the moment. So could you maybe speak to how, how does the gospel motivate us by beauty, by desire, the, the beauty of God? Mm. What are kind of the goods or the joys or the deeper pleasures, so to speak, that, that Christ sets before us that are worth laying everything else down for? Yeah, well, going back to your point earlier, Josh, about just the reality of kind of how we understand ourselves and, you know, with community and there's so many of us that think self-actualization will get us what we want. And the problem in the fall is that the fallen soul, if I could put it that way, has a faulty view of what it means to be human. And we're convinced 
that we can kind of wield ourselves to find abundance in our own power. And for some of us, maybe we can make that work, right? We can get good jobs. We can have a lot of money. We, and we, we actually think that, look, I can kind of wield the power I have to advance in this world in such a way that I can get what I want. And what we discover in Christ is that, that again, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. That this path, even if it feels like flourishing for a time, will ultimately warp your soul. And so let me use just a concrete example. That's just a classic one in our culture. If you look at something like pornography, you know, pornography is going to tap into, on the one hand, natural impulses, although it's tapping deeper into unnatural kind of fallen impulses. So the in, in pornography, what, what is going on in the human person is a desire to have sexuality in a way that is foreign to its design saying I can actualize myself and I can engage in kind of sexual activity without another to love. I can engage in something where I don't have to enter covenantal union with another, where I don't have to stand face to face with another, where I don't have to be known by another. And what we discover is that this is actually not only kind of wrong, like I think many times we just have this under the category of, oh, this is some of the things that we shouldn't do. And we don't think about it more deeply as this is actually warping your soul. There's actually a part of this that is dehumanizing. And the very things that promise to give us life and fulfillment and pleasure ultimately kind of diminish our soul so that the pleasures it does give us are actually quite small. And so the hard thing about the gospel is what we do have to trust is if I do actually lose my life, I will find it. That in Christ... I, there is a beauty that is greater than I can recognize. And in fact, there's a beauty that is greater than what I currently want. And ultimately, that's what faith is, right? Faith is a kind of seeing and trusting in a reality that your, your physical eyes don't perceive. I mean, if you think of Hebrews 11 as just kind of articulating what faith is, through concrete historical examples is faith is, is found in people who look at the world and the world tells us, no, the first are first and the last are last. And faith says, no, actually Jesus says the first will be last and the last will be first. And if I actually give myself to that way, I will come to recognize that there is a deeper beauty here than I can actually see. I mean, this is why, as Augustine will articulate, you know, it's faith-seeking understanding. Like, I trust that Jesus is right when he says, if I try to save my life, I'll lose it, and the last are first and the first are last. I don't see the world that way right now, maybe. I don't I don't necessarily, necessarily think that's actually beautiful. I might not even think that's even good. But by faith, I follow Christ in that way, and I discover there's a deeper beauty here and a deeper pleasure, actually, to be found in communing with Christ here. And once I discover myself in him, I discover that, wow, I can't actually in some sense, ground myself in myself. Right? As Paul says in Colossians 3, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Therefore, I have to actually come to God to discover who I am. And suddenly I'm set free to be who I am in him, which will now entail also knowing myself in an entirely new family with new brothers and new sisters, with people who I can journey with, with, with people who I can actually be known by and come to know. And trust that this is actually the the true way to be a human being in this world that is ultimately modeled yeah, Josh, by Christ you know, himself. I think one of the ways that uh, this shows up in the life of the church is, is as Kyle Kyle was talking, I was kind of just considering kind of my pastoral purview and and the landscape of relationships I have, and 
And oftentimes the questions people show up with on a, on a Sunday morning for church, right? And I think one of the, the, the temptations uh, for pastors and preachers like myself is to kind of apply the gospel to people's lives in a way that actually affirms ultimate fulfillment, ultimate joy, and ultimate satisfaction are in fact found in the places you think they are, as long as you kind of get those right. And Jesus has given you some principles to kind of finally get those things right. And, 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 and they ultimately will get you the place you think they should. For example, you know, I think, I think oftentimes what we show up with is, is this assumption that, you know, if I can just kind of get my parenting dialed in, if I can kind of get my kids obeying me the way I think they should, if I can kind of get my home life ordered properly, if I can kind of get my finances in order, if I can kind of finally get my business functioning the, the way I would hope it would. And right, I kind of add to the list, right? But the, these are kind of the areas of our life that oftentimes that we imagine if, if I can just kind of get to a place here where this is going well, where, where I, I've kind of finally hit my stride, um, where things seem to be functioning properly, then uh, I will experience the joy and the fulfillment of life that I most deeply long for. And again, unfortunately, I think oftentimes the, the temptation of pastors like myself is to out the gate affirm those uh, identified felt needs as the ultimate place of joy and satisfaction. Yeah, you, you're right. And and what we can provide you is kind of godly principles that if you just kind of apply these rights, then all these areas of your life will be ordered properly. And you will finally experience that joy, that contentment, that fulfillment you're longing for, right? And it's subtle, but there's an incredibly important distinction that must be made here, right? That uh, ultimately, while the Lord may indeed have wisdom for you in these areas and and certainly commands of what it means to parent well, what it means to handle your finances with wisdom. Ultimately, the joy and the fulfillment and the satisfaction that our hearts most deeply long for is that which we have been created for, which is fellowship with the triune God himself, right? That, that ultimately the good news is no matter how much you are failing as a parent or succeeding, no matter how much your business is failing or succeeding, no matter how much credit card debt you have or not, that life with God himself, even in the midst of the deepest and most difficult travails of life, is a place of genuine satisfaction and joy. And that's the good news we can offer you in and through Christ Jesus. That's really good. Um, it makes me think about, in general, I think and you guys are kind of getting to this point and, and I think that it's wrapped up pretty, pretty succinctly in the way of the dragon, and the way of the lamb, just in hearing stories from some of these pillars of our contemporary faith, you know, Eugene Peterson and John Perkins and J.I. Packer and mm -hmm. just so many stories of, of wisdom. And I think what's interesting is even me, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking of like, well, the question I want to ask is like, well, what nuggets of wisdom did they give that mm -hmm. I can apply to my life? And that's, that's kind of the point is that's, that's not actually the answer. So the nuance here is, is what is a, a life um, kind of living out in this J curve look like um, spiritual formation wise, what are spiritual rhythms? How do we, how do I think a lot of the themes that we see here, even in hedonism in general, but as far back earlier that we were talking about with um, marriage and self-actualization, I think we all, God made us as a people to worship and where we get off is we're constantly evangelized by our wider culture 
to worship all of these different things. And so um, maybe it's some of the gleanings that you guys uh, had from your books and just pastoral wisdom in general, um, speaking to our people, what were some of the the ways, how, how did you see these pillars of the faith and how they lived their life and seeing the joy of Jesus and living out um, the way of the Lamb? Yeah, well, that's a, yeah, that's a great question. You know, I mean, you know, one of my, uh, you know, as a theologian, one of the things that I kind of give myself to, I mean, just vocationally, and as particularly in the ter- terms of the classes I teach, you know, part of what I teach is like the history of Christian spirituality. And, you know, what I found there and what I saw in the people we interviewed is the, a recognition that I think we've lost. You know, we've had since the 70s, there's been this revival of discussion about spiritual formation and spiritual disciplines, which by and large has been pretty good, I think. I mean, there's been some, I have, I have plenty of worries about it um, as someone who writes and speaks in this area. But my biggest worry is that at the end of the day, our greatest temptation as Christians is self-help. And self-help is going to be such a great temptation because God is going to give us activities that we can that we can very quickly use not to be with him, but to avoid him and to manage him. And we see this with Adam in the garden. We see this with the temple. We see it all throughout scripture. And what I found in Puritan spirituality that I have loved, so we, we were talking earlier about um, a book I did called Form for the Glory of God, which looks at Jonathan Edwards' view of spiritual formation. And it, what I found in Edwards, and then I come to find in actually the Puritans, and actually I've even found it in kind of the Wesleyan tradition, which surprised me a bit that it's identical on this point, is that the things we give ourselves to, they used to call means of grace, not spiritual disciplines, right? So it's not it's not just spiritual discipline is not just like physical discipline with your spiritual life, right? It's not just kind of going to the gym and now you go to a spiritual gym and you kind of pray hard, you read the Bible hard, you go to church hard and you kind of grow strong. But means of grace are ways to receive God because grace is God's self-giving. That the gift we have been given by grace is God's very self. God has given himself to you for communion and life with him. And so these means of grace are ways to use the imperative of the book of Hebrews, they're ways to draw near and they're ways to embrace God. And what we discovered with these folks is like the people that we interviewed for the the Dragon Lamb book, I mean, these are folks who had given themselves profoundly for decades to not just kind of service for God, but to embrace their vocation with him and in his presence. And for all of them, that, that had led to a kind of, you know, it's funny, Jamin and I afterwards would talk about our experiences of these folks and they all seem to just overflow in joy. They, you know, they had an incredible ability that is particularly rare these days, I find, to speak truth even when it was difficult. Like they would, they didn't hesitate to talk about evil in the walls of the church, but they didn't lose hope because their hope wasn't in like the church getting its act together. Their hope was in Christ. And they weren't able to like despair of those things. They could speak with real grace and honesty and humility in those things. And I, as we sat with them, it just struck me like, wow, this is this is what happens to a soul in the presence of God over decades. This is what happens to a soul who's given their lives to be with God and to be with his people. And they have, they had, I mean, we didn't know half these people and they just invited us in, not just to interview them, but they invited us into their life to be with them in a way that isn't you know, a technique, right? This is not something they learned how to do. This is just now who they had become. Wow. I love that distinction between, uh, yeah, like uh, between spiritual disciplines versus means of grace, you know, the, mm. the language and what that communicates. I, I recently, I've stopped calling 
it, like spiritual formation and the 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 phrase i like to use now says spirit formation you know going yeah. like the goal is to be formed by the presence and the power of god not not mm-hmm. necessarily to do these activities that are sort of going to kind of get me spiritually in shape apart from him kind of thing you know mm-hmm. yeah yeah I, I think maybe to piggyback off kyle a bit and to answer your, your question directly greg about these these folks that we had the opportunity to kind of interview for this book we wrote and really calling them interviews feels trite because what Mm. they were, were invitations into their lives and uh, not generically. So, but very, very um, specifically. So, right. And uh, actually attending church with them, sharing meals with them at their, their table, um, walking trails by their homes. um, And I think the, the, the first thing I always tell folks about sitting with, J.I. Packer or Jean Vanier or Eugene Peterson or Marvadon, these folks we spent time with, Dallas Willard is, because uh, I often get people who ask me, what were they like? And, I, and I, I, I often tell them with great joy, they are who you thought they would be. And um, that was the thing that I think most stood out to me about them were that there was an integrity of life with words I had read on pages in their books or things I had heard them say in other settings speak, as speakers. And uh, they were the people I thought they would be. And I think to Kyle's point, um, there was a maturity of heart and of soul that was the accumulation and the effect of uh, what Eugene Peterson himself would call, right? A long obedience in the same direction. And uh, it was an obedience most fundamentally grounded in a life of, of prayer. And that that proverb that, that Kyle and I would often turn to in thinking about these folks, Proverbs 21, 2, that talks about the Lord weighing the heart, right? Or weighing the spirit. And these were people who are weighty of spirit, who are weighty of heart. And um, they may not have uh, physically imposing presence, so they may not have the same charisma or kind of stage presence oftentimes as, as even many other leaders in the church may have. But uh, they were weighty of soul, the kind of people who you could sit with for long hours and whose questions and answers and conversation were born out of a deep well, right? A deep well of communion with the Lord. And I think what struck me in the midst of that was, well, what, what was really at the heart of that maturation and that formation over, as Kyle said, many decades in their life was a, a, a commitment to vulnerability, honesty, and meeting the Lord in their weakness in prayer. And there were people who are well acquainted with their own hearts and had become well acquainted with their own hearts because they had uh, um, met the Lord in the truth of themselves over and over and over again. And I think what impressed me the most is here we're sitting with people who are in their 80s and 90s, some of them, who were, who were talking afresh about not only things that they had come to uh, know and understand, but were able to talk afresh about new ways they were discovering what it meant to depend upon Christ. And this is what I think so impressed me about who they were, was not just that now they could sit in front of a couple, you know, 30-year-old somethings and impart their wisdom and say, here's what I've discovered and now I can hand it to you. And that was part of it but also they could meaningfully talk about ways that they were discovering uh, in even deeper ways and in newer ways, what it meant to depend upon Christ. And I think of J.I. Packer talking about 
his recent hip surgery and how much that had sidelined him and the physical uh, toll it had taken on his body. And yet immediately talking about what it meant to discover in new ways, uh, trusting in Christ to be his strength in a place of very real weakness and frailty. Uh, Dallas Willard, in much the same way, we met with him not long before he passed away, talking about discovering in new ways what it meant to depend upon Christ in places of weakness. And on I could go, but I think what was what was so striking to me in that was here were people that uh, ha- their their faithfulness in the journey was marked by a continued recognition that they were pilgrims on the way, even in their 80s and 90s, right? That there was more to learn and discover and uh, Packer himself telling us, you need to have a 50-year plan. You know, you need to have a, a 50-year plan of what it means to come to trust in Christ to be your strength in places of weakness. A, a 50-year vision of what it would mean to become the kind of person who is worthy to be an elder and a sage in the church when you're 80 and 90. And these were people who, they had this long vision, uh, the long vision for the pilgrimage. And um, they were well acquainted with Christ in places of failure and weakness, such that that was the ongoing dialogue and conversation they have with God, even into those years of their life. That's great, man. Well, I got maybe uh, you know one final question, if we can land here, is just any reflections you guys have on the relation between pleasure and power right? Because we're talking about Pleasure Day, but this book you guys wrote is focused specifically on power. And I think they're really closely related. Like the context of this Daniel Mm -hmm. 5 passage we're in is Babylon, right? It's the powerhouse of the day. Uh, There's this party at the heights of Babylon, and it's the elites who are the leaders, the kings and all. And so you got the elites there, but they're standing on top of the powerless that they've conquered. You know, so they're kind of partying on the powerless, so to speak, right? And uh, and mm-hmm. I think about today that often the pursuit of pleasure, I think Instagram, right? Like it's, a, I, I, I'm on it. I love it. It's great. But there's this vision of the good life that kind of comes implicitly through uh, the images we see and the lives we follow and the, the lives that are, you know, the people who are the most followed are often the elite who have access to um, mm-hmm. the quote unquote pleasures of our day, you know, at, at a different level than probably the majority of our, our especially the world and even our country, you know, even our context here in, in our country. So I'm curious mm-hmm. if you guys have any final kind of reflections um, on this last one, just the, the relationship of pleasure and power and, and even how we pursue power, probably for a lot of reasons, but I, I would think one of the reasons that we pursue power is to leverage it in the interest of our pleasure, our kind of self-actualization and fulfillment and how that shows up even in the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When, you know, when Jamie and I were, were, wrestling through we spent several years before we you know i think the way the drag away the lamb book was about a seven year process for us and in the midst of that we're reading everything the bible has to say about power and trying to wrestle through like what is the logic of a biblical vision here and you know what we one of the things we came up with that as we kind of were sitting with these passages was that the way of the world um what james 3 calls the way of the world the flesh and the devil so like fallen power broken power is always power in strength for the sake of control and usually domination. And that's usually where the pleasure pops in as we begin to think, okay, if I can actualize my strengths, whatever those might be. And, you know, I, I'm always astounded by the human ability to make the, the smallest thing strength. Like we can, we could turn anything into a strength. And in no matter how small our circles are, no matter, you know, how small our reach is, we are all tempted to turn to our strengths to wield it for a sake of controlling life and therefore having pleasures on our own terms. Whereas the way of Christ, we, as we sat with scripture, it became clear the way of Christ is the way of power in weakness 
for the sake of love. And that ultimately this is the joy set before us that um, to quote Jonathan Edwards, heaven is the world of love and love is the greatest, um, the greatest of things you know, faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. And so love is the kind of thing that we all do kind of recognize. This is where pleasure resides and it doesn't, you don't have to be a believer to make that claim. Just watch any Hollywood movie and love to some degree is going to be the goal. But now we understand love in the way of Jesus and it's love in a kind of different mode and that we have to come to trust that actually for the joy set before us in love, um, we enter into the realities of our lives in this broken and in many ways evil world, not to try to control it, not to try to dominate it, but in our weakness to embrace the way that Jesus has laid before us. Mm. Yeah. You know, Josh, you're, uh, your your setup there and talking about Instagram reminds me of a uh, uh, a tweet I saw from Seth Rogen of all people this past week. Uh, um, I and I'm not a big follower of Seth Rogen normally on Twitter, but it, it, the 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 tweet was is very apropos to exactly what we're talking about. And I pulled it up as you were talking. He, he tweeted this week: Instagram is great because otherwise I wouldn't know how many parties I wasn't being invited to. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, what? exactly. And, That's been my frustration. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. And I think no one's inviting Josh is in all those party. That's right. This, the great theologian, I think Seth Rogen, actually hits on something quite quite profound there, right? And there's this kind of, um, I think you're right that that power and pleasure are, are it, it, particularly in our culture as well, are kind of tethered together, right? And um, and I think that there is a intrinsic kind of uh, assumption about the value of status hierarchies um, within our culture that uh, the more power you have, the, the greater pleasure you can, you can achieve. And that, that, that that's a good goal. Uh, the more pleasure you're, you're able to gain, well, more, more than likely these days, it means the more power you have. And so now we have, you know, of course, whole TV shows, reality TV shows based around the notion of here's people who have power and look at all the pleasure they can engage in. And isn't that amazing? Right. And there's there's literally no other kind of tell us or goal of the show other than to let us know, well, this person got a show because they have a lot of money and power and look what they can do with it. They can have a lot of pleasure. Right. And so I think these two things do tend to be kind of intimately connected in our culture. And I think uh, maybe to, to, to kind of attach this to some of what Kyle and I developed in our book, which I think Kyle narrated really well there, maybe with one simple point would be this, that that trajectory tends towards uh, dehumanization. And ultimately the, the, the way other people are viewed kind of all in light of this kind of quest for power and pleasure together is they're ultimately used as resources for achieving those ends. Right. And so, um, on, on the power side, people uh, are, um, reduced to kind of resources to achieve maybe said goals. And, um, but on the pleasure side, they're, they're used as resources to kind of meet certain felt needs for gratification. Right. And so we see this playing out in our culture, of course, ubiquitously with, uh, the way uh, sex is viewed, um, but not only through the lens of sex, but all, all forms of pleasure, right? Where relationships and intimacy are by and large gauged as valuable to the degree that they meet kind of felt needs for pleasure. And uh, ultimately, 
th that is a mode of wielding power in and of itself, right? Using another for the sake of my own kind of felt needs rather than viewing another as uh, a person uh, worthy of dignity and in need of love themselves. So I, I think you're absolutely right to bring these two pieces, power and pleasure together. I think they play intimately together in our culture. That's good. Well, guys, as much as I want to keep asking more questions, and I literally do have a list uh, of more <laughs> questions, we just don't have time to get to them all. Uh, it is time to wrap up. So Jamin and Kyle, thank you guys so much for joining us today. We really appreciate oh, it. Thanks so much for having us. Good to be with uh, you guys. Again, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yes. thanks, you guys. And to those of you that are listening, again, I can't recommend enough their most recent book. Uh, the name, again, is The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb, Searching for Jesus' Path of Power in a Church That Has Abandoned It. I just reread it again a few weeks ago because it's a good example of this long-term vision of joy and wisdom like Jamie and Kyle have been talking about in this podcast. And I just, for me personally, that's something that I need to continually be reminded of living in this age of instant <laughs> gratification. So thank you guys to that and what you do for the greater church body as a whole. Um, thanks we'll so much, go Greg. go ahead and continue. Yes, yeah, absolutely. You. We're going to go ahead and continue uh, next week with our final week in Exiles where we'll do a wrap up and discuss what it looks like to be a faithful presence in the places that God has us. So thanks again for listening to the Redemption Tempe podcast, where we believe all of life is all for Jesus. Mm -hmm.